I'm Susan Freeman. Welcome back to our Property She podcast, where I get to interview some of the key influencers in the world of real estate and the built environment. Today, I'm really delighted to welcome Steve Norris. Steve was an MP for more than 14 years and as Transport Minister with special responsibility for London under John Major, brought us the Jubilee Line extension. He famously stood against Ken Livingstone as London mayoral candidate in 2000 and 2004. And having worked with both central and local government, Steve's unique, in-depth political and commercial knowledge makes him highly sought after for his many board and advisory roles in the fields of transport, infrastructure and property. The Property She podcast is brought to you by Mish Condorea in association with the London Real Estate Forum. Please make sure you check out our Property She website on mishcon.com slash property she for all our interviews and program notes. So now we get a chance to talk to Steve Norris about his career in politics and business and how he'd deal with some of our current challenges. Steve, welcome. Pleasure. You have somehow managed to um, combine a successful career in in politics with a successful career in business. That's unusual. Um, How did you manage to do that? (laughs) I think it's an attitude of mind, fun enough. You know, the thing about private business, uh, whether it's a quota business or a privately owned business, is that the boss of the company says, be reasonable, do it my way. The boss sets the tone, sets the agenda, sets the targets, and if successful, delivers them. And really successful bosses don't get there by being uh, reasonable. I mean, I always remember the great late Irvine Seller being asked, to what do you attribute your great success? And he said, well, some people say that I'm an unreasonable man. He said, but the world is made by unreasonable people. Now, the difference is that in politics... Just because you, as the minister, think that something's a good idea doesn't mean it's going to happen, because below you will be a whole series of officials and, indeed, if you like, to the side of you, other political colleagues who may not be quite as convinced as you are of the rightness of your idea. Maybe they think it's too radical. Maybe they just don't think you understand. Maybe they think you're right, but for various reasons to do with their own constituencies, they don't want to agree with you. So the whole process is much more about consensual argument, debate, uh, getting your arm around people's shoulders, moving the tanker very, very slowly if you want to turn it round. Don't think you can ever just, you know, swing the wheel. You never do it. And that kind of approach to life is what really is the difference. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you get a lot of ministers who uh, come from business. They generally last about a year. Uh, doesn't turn before they get so frustrated they say that's it I'm out of here and it seemed to me quite obvious that the first thing you had to do is to understand that you probably aren't going to turn the ship round completely even in your time as minister I mean I for example I I fought for and got started the Jubilee Line extension but I didn't open it because by then actually I'd left politics and the Labour government was in charge. You have to understand that you're part of a process that might take 10 years. I'm a huge supporter of HS2 because I think it's a great equaliser in our country and massively you know, necessary. But I know it'll be decades before it's actually built and I'm just, you know, clinging on to the hope that I'll be there on the first train, but I'll probably be wheeling myself on with my, you know, with my wheelchair. Well, put in the terms, in, in terms of 
moving the tanker slowly, it was a massive achievement to get the Jubilee Line extension because there must have been quite a lot of opposition at that time. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's actually a very serious proposition because th- th- this country has been very bad generally at infrastructure, at funding infrastructure. Just today I heard, you know, people talking about HS2 saying it could provide, what was it, something like 62,000 nurses and, you know, 24 major hospitals or whatever. Um, Yes, of course, you can always do something else with the money, and it all sounds very enticing. But other countries do recognise that sometimes you simply have to put the infrastructure in and you will pay the bill. What's really interesting is that the Jubilee Land Extension cost overran by something like 30-odd percent. They were small figures in terms of, say, Crossrail or HS2. But it was delivered at $3.2 billion in 2000. As you know, on the day, of course, everybody knows it started on Millennium Night. It's now worth between 30 and $40 billion to the London economy in terms of what it facilitates between Docklands and the city and the West End. And that's how you have to think of something like, um, you know, HS2, for example, or Crossrail. Crossrail isn't going to cost 15 million billion. It may cost 20 billion. It may even cost 22 billion. And I'm not. That's not a technical estimate. So you know, just I'm just saying it may overrun even further. But the day it opens, it will transform London. It will add 10% to London's rail services. It will facilitate massive economic improvement. It's massively worth its money. I believe the same is true of HS2. Again, the figures are bigger. But these big infrastructure decisions really have to get made there. You know, we're, we're talking about property today. But property depends crucially on connectivity. Without connectivity, you know, you'll never sell the houses because nobody can ever, or the apartments, nobody will ever be able to live in them because they won't be able to get any from from where they live. Connectivity is everything. And presumably without the um, Jubilee Line extension, the Olympics wouldn't have been possible. Olympics wouldn't have been possible, but I'll give you an even more direct example. Prior to the Jubilee Line, um, there was a view that Canary Wharf was essentially a negative asset. Mm. Most of the buildings there would have cost more to maintain and secure and provide security to than they would have earned in net rental income. Um, of course, the minute that the, the, the Jubilee Line opened, the value of the Canary Wharf estate, the old Olympia New York estate and others, rocketed massively. And now, of course, it's not where you put the back office, it's where many, many businesses put their front office. Well, I think we owe you a debt of uh, gratitude. Um, so you, you famously stood as London mayoral candidate against Ken Livingstone in 2000 and um, 2004. And uh, I know you've talked a little bit about how we are or we've become a little bit complacent about London's role as a world city. Uh, if, you, if you were mayor now, what, what would be the number one priority? Oh, I think for me, um, uh, the number one priority would actually, ironically, to be to sort TfL's finances out because they're in a parlour state and our transport system in London is beginning to crumble. That's really, really difficult to, um, you know, to deal with. It requires funding. So I'd be much more, um, I kind of say, friendly towards the Department of Transport than the current mayor. Funding is not there when it should be there. The second biggest issue, of course, is housing. You could add in, of course, 
course, the third issue, which is ironically the one that I fought two elections on, which was policing and security. And, you know, at the time, I remember we argued that uh, why can't London do what New York could do when Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York and completely transformed the way people felt about the city. Well, you know, as it happens, crime has been falling consistently over the last, you know, 15 years. But sadly, now we've got this big incidence of knife crime, which I think arises from two sources. One is in in terms of why it suddenly peaked. One is no question that there is pressure on police budgets. That's not necessarily a number of police officers. You know, 15 years ago, nobody in the police service was spending their time trawling through the internet, finding hate crime or, you know, checking people's mobile phones and so on when it comes to, you know, the proceeds of crime. I mean, these days... It's a very different police service. And then, of course, crime prevention is part of it. What really gets me, I spent a lot of time when I was in the Home Office and subsequently talking about why is it that we only tend to deal with crime when it's been committed? Why aren't we doing more to keep young people who feel alienated by our communities? Why aren't we doing more to give them a real sense of purpose and self-worth? I've been involved with several charities which are absolutely fixed on this objective and now the Surrey Canal Sports Foundation for example down in the east end of London we run some fantastic sporting activity that gives young people black white Asian a sense of community a sense of purpose a sense of self-worth a sense of teamwork all the things that are likely to keep them away from a life of crime I think that's much more important than worrying about cleaning up the mess afterwards. You don't want to stand again, do you, Steve? Oh, you know, I couldn't afford it. That's all. I couldn't afford it. OK. So just um, going back to what you said at the beginning about um, Transport for London uh, finances, I mean, I think you highlighted in your Property Week column this week the way we work has changed, flexibility. Yes. People aren't travelling to another, not commuting every day. That's not going to change. So how is Transport for London going to keep that revenue up without increasing fair prices. Well, well, I mean, there's an argument that says that um, the city should effectively subsidise public transport, and that's what uh, the TfL budget assumes. Um, largely because, of course, every time somebody uses the underground or uses a bus, then they're improving air quality for all of us, all those of us who are simply walking around the streets or living close to traffic. So, you know, the, the value of public transport is enormous. You're quite right. This later trend to flexible working has the kind of slightly perverse effect if you're a transport operator that you get fewer people using your service because they're more working from home. But this is a trend which we simply have to cope with and deal with. It may mean in some cases that we need less service, for example, on night bus routes than we currently operate. Um, I think a radical overhaul of London's bus routing um, would actually is overdue and would actually produce some very interesting results. There's an awful lot of service that probably shouldn't be running at certain times of the day. And I'm not talking about, you know, buses in Oxford Street and whatever, those hardy annuals, um, although there's an element there. But it's difficult to see how you could actually completely alter that situation. Nonetheless, looking at bus flows, And that's how we deal with the new approach to working is, I think, one of the big challenges for TfL. Um, But don't get me wrong, I don't think in the near or medium future you're going to be able to run TfL as a either a profitable business or even as a break-even business. It's going to need quite a lot of subsidy, which we as Londoners ought to be prepared to pay for. 
couple of years ago, uh, there was a London Finance Commission report which made some very interesting suggestions about fiscal um, and other devolution for London. Um, it seems to have gone a little bit uh, quiet. I mean, is that something we should really be focusing on and giving London some autonomy to make its own decisions? Well, you know, the great Professor Tony Travers just talks such obvious common sense about uh, most issues, and he was absolutely right about this. Everybody knows who's worked in government, and I've been in local government as well as in national government, that the current system is horribly broken. Just to give you uh, uh, some idea, the average local authority only raises 17% of its revenue from its council tax. All the rest of it comes from government. So, you know, 83% of everything that council spends will actually come in the form of grants or allowances or block grants from central government, a lot of it directed at what central government's objectives are. You know, we've told you what we want you to do, Mr. Local Authority, here's the money, go off and do it, which is hardly allowing the local authority much flexibility in the way they use that money. And, you know, bluntly, it's also true that every year over the last 15, um, when austerity might seem a slightly odd phrase to use, when in every single year of the last 15, the amount that government spends has actually gone up, not down, nonetheless, where it's really bitten is in public services. It's bitten with local authorities who every single year have been asked to do more with less money. Now, that's just not acceptable. And what Tony was talking about and what works for London actually works for the rest of the country. We need to get to a situation where, if you like, 83% of what a council spends is raised locally. Now, clearly, you know, that means paying less income tax, paying less of other taxes to compensate for paying so much more in local tax. But that would actually mean it was worth my while voting. You know, the real irony about local elections is that we all know that they're not actually about local affairs at all. And I think that's because most people kind of instinctively recognise it doesn't really make any difference whether you have a Labour or a Conservative council. They've got so much, so, so constrained resources that there's very little that it can do that government is allowing them, isn't allowing them to do. So my own view is that we need to get to that situation where we actually introduce probably... Uh, a portion of income tax, ironically, because that would make it relatively painless, which isn't going to central government, but is going to local government. That would allow Treasury to make the kind of necessary adjustments that would make this thing reasonably painless to introduce. And then I could say, I'm going to stand for better services, more efficiently delivered, for example, by private contractors. And my Labour opposition might say, no, 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 I believe that, you know, the public sector does it best. It might cost you more, but, you know, the public will own the service. Now, those are legitimate arguments, but it would actually make, make it worth my while voting. It would make a lot of sense because you mentioned housing earlier. I mean, you know, really big issue. We have a housing crisis and yet um, we need the local authorities, I think, to be in a position to build their own social housing, affordable well, that's housing. absolutely right. I mean, there's a dichotomy here because on the one hand, we want local authorities to take more responsibility for building housing. On the other hand, of course, the only power that local authorities do really retain these days is the power to say the answer's no. Now, what's the question when you come to planning? And I'm afraid to say that uh, whereas outside London, planners are generally much more accommodating and indeed positively welcoming and, and will say, you know, how can we help you? In London, I mean, let's be clear about this, part of the problem in delivering housing is the attitude of local authorities towards planning.
Yes, I was uh, going to get to the to the question of of planning. Uh, you you advise um, you know, a number of major developers on um, complex complex planning issues, so you must be seeing this um, all all the time. I mean, there clearly is um, a problem with our planning system, but it's not absolutely clear how one uh, sorts out because again, a lot of it seems to be down to underfunding, not having um, you know the right sort of teams in planning departments. But is that is that the problem is it money or is there something more fundamental oh i think that, that it's absolutely true that sadly if you're a really good planner you'll get you'll get pinched by the private sector immediately come and work for us on the dark side you know where the money's better and the hours are less and you won't have to deal with the horrible sort of you know public sector whole sort of vibe that affects local and central government it, you can tell why it's difficult to recruit at the right level however i don't think that is the problem the the problem is the system um, there's a slight irony about this because you say I do advise on a lot of very complex planning schemes and frankly um, I really don't think I should have to it's as simple as that, I don't think I should have to very interesting, you know, Reza Merchant who uh, founded the collective and is one of our most successful young developers, is spending increasing amounts of time these days in New York and when I asked him about this he said a very simple he said, Let me give you, he, said he had a terrible run around uh, from the London Legacy Development Corporation's refusal to let him build a decent building in Stratford for his co-living product. Uh, He said, contrast that with what I'm doing in Brooklyn. He said, I've got a site in Brooklyn. All they say is it's got to be no wider than this and no taller than that. He said, basically, I can get on and do what I want with it. Nobody says, is this the right use? They say, well, it's your money, for God's sake. Presumably, you know what you're doing. Now, I'm not suggesting we go necessarily all the way there. But moving more to a zoning system where I know I will get consent to build and all I need to do is to satisfy you that what I'm doing isn't impeding other development, you know, and is deliverable within the context of the site that I own, that's the kind of system that we really need and we just don't have it. Of course, the the problem is that the very councillors whose only real power these days is planning are the people who go out and, you know, put leaflets through the doors for MPs when they want to get elected and who support them and who probably run their local associations, their labour their labor associations or Tory associations. So MPs, of course don't really dare propose the kind of radical change that I'm talking about because what it would do is to take some of the powers of local authorities away. At the moment, the local authority speaks for those who already live in the area and nobody really speaks for the people who desperately need housing and don't currently live in the area. That's one of the great quandaries of our system and you need radical reform to get it right. So uh, you mentioned the collective and uh, obviously it is a rental scheme, but the government still seems to be focusing an awful lot on, you know, the dream of home ownership, that that everybody should buy their own home. And yet, um, you know, one of the fastest growing sectors is build to rent. Um, Do you think we've got beyond, um, you know, people thinking they must own their own home to a sort of, you know, really a lifestyle choice to rent rather than to buy at certain stages during your life. Yeah, I do do think we're getting to a real tipping point. uh, And I think it's pretty obvious why. Um, You know, when I um, first started off on the housing ladder, I knew that what I had to do was to mortgage myself absolutely to the hilt, to, to the point where it really hurt in the early days, because the more property I bought now, 
the more it would be worth in a year's time, two years' time, three years' time. And, you know, basically one couldn't afford to ever get off the ladder. If you'd ever rented in the days when I was, um, you know, sort of living in London, well, then you'd never be able to go back and buy the kind of property that you left to go and rent. You know, it was it would have been a disaster. These days, we've had well over a decade of almost zero interest rates and very low inflation. Over the last two or three years in London, in many cases, if you bought your house, for example, in 2014-15, you might well find that today it's actually worth slightly less, certainly no more than it was when you bought it. So the whole idea that you desperately had to own in order to keep the value of your capital alive is no longer true. And I also think the millennium generation, which is much more focused on the idea of being able to travel, what they call the experiential life rather than, you know, the sort of investment life, um, is a a feature of modern living and facility, of cheap uh, aviation, of, you know, a broader horizon, of people being much more aware of this big wide world that they live in and which they want to experience. So, you know, yeah, I think the experiential life is rather more attractive to young people than necessarily saying, gosh, I own, isn't it marvellous that I own this place, when actually there doesn't seem to be any difference these days whether you own it or you buy it. Now, that won't always be the case, but it is true that if you looked at the way rates of inflation and rates of housing inflation worked from, say, the 1950s to the 2000s, I mean, there was an absolutely explosive, um, you know, uh, increase in the value of property. I mean, I remember on one occasion buying a property, this would be in the early 80s, for uh, an amount which two years later, when for various reasons I moved, we doubled now that's just kind of crazy, um, but that was the that was not a, not unusual in those days. We're way off that now. Uh, we've seen the collapse of the ultra high uh, end of property in London for again for political reasons of various sorts. Um, but we've seen almost no growth in the London housing market at every level, even below a million. It's been pretty flat for the last oh five six years. A product, as I say, of very low interest rates and very low inflation generally. So we've got this far without mentioning the Brexit word. Um, is it is it is it worth just um, talking a little bit about where the opportunities um, for the UK are going to be in the post uh, Brexit world? Yeah, I mean, I think it is it is interesting, isn't it, that that um, we were told that if we even dared vote to leave, that the economy would crash, and it certainly hasn't. Not only did it not do immediately, it hasn't done since either. In fact, as you know right now, the UK is looking at higher growth rates than Germany or France, the two other major economies in the European Union. That's incidentally because Germany is a heavily industrialised economy and it's manufacturing industry that's taking the biggest hits. But, you know, the UK economy continues to be pretty solid and much more to the point, um, we have the great advantage of speaking English, having a transparent system, housing the big four uh, accounting firms and the magic circle law firms who dominate 
uh, the English-speaking world in terms of finance, accountancy and professional services. People like coming here. They still love London as a city, although that doesn't mean to say they always will, but they certainly love it as it is right now. It's considered a safe place to live, which relatively, of course, it still is. Uh, not as safe as some of us would like it, but it's certainly very safe compared to virtually everywhere else in the world. Stable currency, uh, you know, stable government, believe it or not, because it is democratic. We may have a government at the moment which happens not to have a majority in Parliament, but generally speaking, those who say, gosh, you know, democracy is collapsing have missed the point entirely. Democracy is working very, very well. (laughs) Parliamentarians are able to express a view. So, no, I think what you'll see is that actually in the post-Brexit world, You'll see sterling rise, of course, because almost any final solution, whatever it is, whether it's Mrs May's deal or any other deal, will allow investors to say, finally, we've got a deal, let's move on. That will see sterling rise. Good if you're going on holiday, not great if you're an exporter. Um, Not great, actually, if you're looking to people to come in and buy your property. One of the really interesting things right now is the number of investors who are saying, I'm just going to wait and see what happens with Brexit, because if the currency goes the other way, I might buy that building for 10% cheaper. They're still going to buy. That's what's interesting. Everybody I talk to who's in the investment management business says... All my all my you know prospects are still there. They still want London. They're just waiting until we resolve Brexit, which, please God, we will do sometime soon. We really have to. So, just turning to a couple of the property companies you have a particular interest in, um, you've been chairman of Soho Estates for for some years. I think they have about sixty acres of property in Soho, and the strapline is building the future, respecting uh, the past. So one of the issues is how you modernise without you know, gentrifying and sanitising an area. I mean, is is that quite a difficult path to tread? Well, I think it is in our case because, you know, um, respecting the past and building the future would probably be what many developers would say about the towns and cities and, and quarters of cities that they, that, they, that they own or that they want to build in. But in our case, of course, it's been quite a dramatic change. In the 60s and the 70s, and all the way up to the introduction of the internet, actually, you know, Soho was where you went for rather illicit purposes, you know, for sex. You went for sex. You went to the clubs and the strip clubs and the bars and whatever, and uh, you could walk up the stairs of some of those uh, little rooms in Old Compton Street and Brewer Street and in Walker's Court and Peter Street and so on. And, you know, that was not necessarily terribly attractive, but it was pretty unique. That Soho was where you went. Well, that's gone. It's all gone. So what we've got to do is completely transform. You've got to keep that edginess you know, one of our in-house mottos in Soho Estates is edgy, not sleazy. Um, you know, there are aspects of Soho that are still, frankly, not attractive and which we have no truck with at all. But at the same time, I think what looking to the future and respecting the past is about is precisely, as you say, with those higgledy-piggledy buildings. They're not massively distinguished buildings as such. Keeping that vibe, keeping it lively, keeping it a place you really want to go to. And we've done that through 
you know, investing in clubs and pubs and bars and in, you know, for example, the Boulevard Theatre, which uh, is coming, which is Vaughan James's big uh, project, which is going to be just great in Walker's Court, a new theatre where the old comedy club was, where, you know, all the comics of the 80s and 90s actually learned their trade. Um, it's it's about uh, Nick Jones's Soho House and all the adjuncts to Soho House about, you know, the Groucho and... Uh, But the Admiral Card and all those great pubs, the Pink Pounds, are really significant part of what we do. We love that. I love the fact that it's a very unusual business. You know, nowhere else do you get uh, a demo outside your office from the English Collective of Prostitutes on occasions. I mean, it's just very, very funny. It's a great business to be in, and I love it to bits. Turning to a slightly different property business, you've recently become uh, chairman of this land, which is... um a Cambridge council-owned development company, and I'm delighted to be a non-exec director along, alongside you. Um, obviously, very different company from Soho Estates and um, the other companies you're uh, involved in. What, what particularly interested you in this role? Well, you know, um, I said earlier that um, uh, there is massive pressure on local authorities to do more with less every year. They have really stretched revenue budgets. And so um, a few years ago, uh, one or two enterprising local authorities recognized that there was a way in which you could at least mildly ameliorate that situation. And that was by using the Public Works Loan Board, which is a strange sort of uh, creature within government, but essentially is able to lend um, local authorities money at extremely competitive rates for them to invest in, frankly, a very wide range of assets of one sort or another. Um, the Public Work Loan Board doesn't tend to be overly critical of how the money is being is used. It merely, uh, you know, wants to be clear that there is a base case for the investment. And that's led, as I think most of our listeners will know, to a proliferation of local authorities using this device of the Public Works Loan Board to basically create more income from themselves. Now, for example, Spellthorne Council simply said, well, let's arbitrage this very cheap money we get by buying commercial property with a yield which is significantly greater than the amount of interest that we're paying. And, uh, you know, they've now got something like a billion pounds worth of commercial property in mostly in central London on which, at today's prices at least, they're probably making something like 5% arbitrage between the rate they're paying and the, and the yield that they're getting. Now, you know, on that basis, that's uh, 50 million quid extra to spend on a billion pounds of the property. That's pretty significant. Um, in the case of other local authorities, however, they've seen this very differently. Darren Robwell, the charismatic leader of Barking at Dagenham, Labour Council, brilliantly run council, says, I want to use this facility of an arm's-length property company to put my property in at zero with a commercial developer so that when I say I want half of this to be affordable, I can actually then get two people on a London living wage to be able to afford to live in one of my apartments. And he calls his scheme Nobody Left Behind. Now, I think that's answering a specific problem that he has. He hates gentrification, which just means pushing poor people out and letting middle-class people in. And he quite rightly says, this is the way I can deal with it. Cambridgeshire, 
Well, Cambridgeshire desperately needs more revenue, and so what it's decided to do is to take its surplus land and transfer it into the arms-length property company, which, uh, as you say, is called This Land, um, and basically said, go and hire a proper professional property development team and go and become our wholly owned property development arm, starting with our own sites, so we not only get the land value, but we get the development value as well. And, of course, as you know, because you're part of this, and I'm absolutely delighted that you are, it's a very exciting prospect. We're probably dealing with, at the moment, about £74 million worth of of Cambridgeshire land. We'll develop all that out over the next, um, well, five to ten years, really, because some of these sites are quite large. But we'll also be developing outside Cambridgeshire because, as an arm's-length company, we actually do run it as if it were a perfectly commercial business. The role of Cambridgeshire is simply to be our shareholder. Now, shareholders have to be respected in any format, but in the practical sense, we operate as if we were a listed company. We make the management decisions, they get the benefit in terms of dividends or in the repayment of their loans. I think it's going to be it's going to be an exciting journey, isn't it? It's going to be a great and exciting ride. So I have have a final question for you, uh, Steve. What was your best career decision and is there anything with the advantage of hindsight you would have done differently? Oh, well, if I had the advantage of hindsight, I'd have never gone into politics because the pay is absolute rubbish. And, um, you know, uh, I, I look at my pension from Parliament. It's very funny, parliamentary pensions. Everybody assumes MPs get fabulous pensions. I did 15 years in Parliament, five of them as a Minister of the Crown. I think my pension is about £1,000 a month, some ridiculous sum, which, you know, I have to say, doesn't go that far in the Norris household. No, seriously. I think I've had a wonderful life. It's been completely accidental. Everything that's happened has been... It was an accident that I got elected to a county council. It was an accident getting into Parliament. Um, It was an accident, you know, in a way, stumbling into business afterwards. I'd always been in business. Um, That seemed to be pretty logical. Uh, I've had some wonderful, wonderful um, opportunities. Do I regret any of it? No, je ne regret it. Yeah. And I look forward to the future with enormous enthusiasm. I'm going to retire the day the phone stops ringing. Well, Steve certainly doesn't sit on the fence. And I don't think anyone else combines his unique, in-depth understanding of the world of politics and the world of real estate, transport and infrastructure. So uh, thank you, Steve, for managing to mention sex and also uh, mentioning the late Irvine Seller, Reza Merchant and Barking and Dagenham leader Darren Rodwell. So that's it for now. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. Please join us for the next Property Sheet podcast interview coming very shortly. The Property Sheet podcast is brought to you by Mishcon Rare in association with the London Real Estate Forum and can be found at mishcon.com slash property along with uh, all our interviews. The podcasts are also available to subscribe to and download on your Apple podcast app and on Spotify and whatever podcast app you use. And please continue to let us have your feedback and comments and very importantly, suggestions for future guests. And of course, you can also follow me on Twitter at Property She for a very regular commentary on all things real estate, prop tech and the built environment.